Well, good morning. morning. It's always good to visit uh, with other churches to be able to to be asked to preach. Um, Several churches have taken that risk, and I'm still in Cookville. I'm still in in, in Putnam County, so that can't be a bad thing. Um, The other good thing about it is, you know, when it comes to preaching uh, and churches that you're visiting, uh, you realize they can't fire you, so you can really just say whatever you want, uh, and that's and that's a good thing too. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here. Uh, of course, uh, under different circumstances is good too. And uh, I was talking to some a couple of people at the funeral the other day for Larry, and uh, agreed that for the Christian, for the believer, uh, the believing family that's left behind. It's the most bittersweet moment that you can go through. Because on one hand, you think, man, I'm a believer. I should be rejoicing, right? Because we know where Larry is, right? Because he's redeemed and with his Savior, as, as so aptly put at the, at the service. But on the other hand, there's just this love and this whole uh, to remember the legacy and to celebrate the legacy that a family member leaves is important, but they never replace the family member. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a piece of that where uh, it's the most bittersweet moment that a, uh, that a believer can go through. And then I think about those who don't have Jesus, those who are not redeemed. What a hopeless and empty time it is of loss. And, um, there's something to be said there uh, and something that we should continue to celebrate there. So it is a bittersweet moment for me to be here. Uh, um, and um, I, I've talked with Brian about what he was sharing with you, what was on his heart uh, to share with you. Uh, and as always is, uh, it seems to happen uh, to me. Uh, the Lord, I think, just does this to me just because he's got a sense of humor. When my pastor, Kitash, goes on vacation and says, okay, I need you to cover the pulpit, I look to see where we're at in Scripture, and it's always one of the most difficult passages to preach. So when I was talking to Brian, he says, yeah, I'm sharing about the incarnation and the hypostatic union. I'm like, oh, come on, Lord, come on. <laughs> Give a brother a break. <laughs> so uh, Brian passed along his notes to me, uh, working hard on it, and I, and I want to be able to hopefully can capture what was on his heart to you as well as um, as well as study that I've done on this particular passage. So I hope I hope it does him justice. It does the Lord justice, of course, first. But uh, but it's but it's a ministry to you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter one. I'm going to start reading in verse thirty, and we'll read through verse thirty-eight. We won't cover all of those verses, but we will cover. Uh, what I think was the main point of um, the great miracle, right? Starting in verse 30 of chapter 1 of Luke, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary said to the angel, 
How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. It is powerful. It is transforming. I pray that we would not get in the way of what your spirit wants to do today. I pray your spirit would bring truth, comfort, conviction, and celebration. I pray that we would be a changed people. That we would be willing vessels to hear, willing vessels to deliver the spoken word of God himself. We submit ourselves to you and to your spirit, our hearts, our minds, and our spirits, one with you. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the central themes of the Gospel of Luke is, is this kind of two-volume work, right, between Luke and, uh, and the Acts of the Apostles. And one of the central themes is actually revealed in this particular passage. So the scene is Mary is a young maiden. She's engaged to Joseph, visited by an angel who tells her not only that she found favor with God, but she's going to bear a child who will be called God's son and the king of Israel. Luke tells us that Mary is perplexed. Gee, I wonder why. So I look at all the moms in the room and said, what if you got this visit from an angel? It would perplex, it'd be perplexing. Actually, the word perplexed means she was bowled over, blown away, maybe even perhaps terrified. What she, whatever she was feeling, she asked this question, which is probably as simple as it is necessary or essential. How can this be? And her question, of course, gets immediate, direct revelation and relevancy from God. Mary is a virgin. How indeed can she bear a child? How can this be, for I am plain and ordinary? How can this be, I don't know anything about raising a king. How can this be, I am mortal? How can this be? So Gabriel replies, describing the work of the Holy Spirit in and through and on Mary. But I don't know if that helps Mary. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit come upon you and the power of the Most High to overshadow you? He repeats his promise that her child will be holy and named as God's own son. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. My mind is pretty finite. How about yours? And what God gives to us is an infinite Glorious, where depth can't be measured truth. I really believe that this probably, every time it's attempted to be taught or preached, we can't do it justice. Speakers and teachers. 
Really, it's what the church experiences. It's what the church has knowledge of. It's what the redeemed know in the deepest parts of who they are. Overshadow you. Well, thankfully, we have help from Gabriel, but we also have help from Scripture to help us understand what our finite minds can handle. So turn to the book of John. I'm just going to read a little bit of John here. Because John really helps us understand what Gabriel is talking about to Mary. It's called the hypostatic union, which I know Pastor Bryant last week, uh, listening to his message, started to develop and to, uh, to unpack. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Jump to verse 14. Who's the Word then? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and called out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who is coming after me has proved to be my superior, because He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace... For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. The overshadowing of Mary by God gives us this grand miracle that Pastor Bryant was unpacking last week, the hypostatic union. Back in the passage in Luke 1, we realize and we learn that the reason, that, uh, the reason that Christ is not to be recognized as a mere man or just a mere son of Mary, he's not to be recognized as that, but rather who he is in truth, the son of God, man and God. Gabriel is saying on account of this conception, this overshadowing, this, this, this power that's going to come on you by the power of God, not by the involvement of man, but by the power of God, Mary, you're going to conceive. So the overshadowing is the answer to the question, by what means shall I have a son? By what means will this conception happen? If it's not by sexual relations, then how is it going to happen? Gabriel's answer shows us the function and the purpose of her being overshadowed. She is to be a part of the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. I mean, I started with saying you can't do the passage justice. So almost it seems like you read a passage like this or John 1.1, 1, 1, and if you just slow down, if you, if you don't just read the words, if you experience the words, I'm not talking about a new age thing. I'm just talking about slowing down and letting the word of God grip you. I kind of feel like we should be taking off our shoes. We're on holy ground here. Are you with me? Say amen if you heard that.
If we would just stop and consider what the hypostatic union means, what overshadowing Mary means, we would be undone. Marveling at the mystery in this description. Henry Moore said that we cannot comprehend the mechanics of such a miracle. We can only believe God's word. Isn't that true? I can't process it. I, I can't fathom it. If it weren't God's doing, I'd say it, has, it goes against the laws of nature. But you can't argue that. We have to believe it. The message of Scripture, though, is very, very clear regarding the virgin birth. There can be no question about the virgin birth. No one can question the virgin birth. They can question the authority of Scripture if they want. But they can't question the virgin birth. The virgin birth is unique. Many mythologies, many legends tell a story about a God who had relations with a woman and produced an offspring. But the idea of a virgin birth is unique to Christianity. The clear, the clear implication is that this is a holy conception. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are intimately and mysteriously involved in this whole pregnancy from start to finish. And it's in a manner beyond our comprehension. Jesus was fully human, yet completely sinless from conception. Now the explanation of how that could be is really covered, shrouded, if you will, in this infinite, unfathomable, misunderstood mystery of the Incarnation. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The physical sense of this word overshadow simply means to cast a shadow, to envelop or, or to shade. In the metaphoric sense, it may include concepts of being like surrounded by a condition or a person's influence, losing a significance or, or appearance because something or someone gains greater attention so as to diminish the attention given to something else. The spiritual sense of the word is neither physical nor metaphoric, but it does provide both physical and metaphoric results. When God overshadows something, when God overshadows someone, the spiritual reality of his presence is focused on that object. 
That object experiences the full effects of his purpose for which he's overshadowing. God overshadows to produce his will upon a person, upon a place, upon a region, upon a thing, upon the whole of creation. Overshadowing is more than God is here. Overshadowing casts God's influence upon whatever he overshadows in a way that envelops. Overshadowing seals something off from other influences for the time of overshadowing while bringing the overshadowed object into its highest and greatest purpose. The Most High of the Highest overshadows to release the Most High and the Highest of what is overshadowed. Are you with me? I used to have this thing in work that one of my bosses told me that in order to be the best worker, the best producer, you got to work and never put a lid on your jar. And that comes from the story of a flea. A flea, if you put it in a jar and put a lid on it, the flea tries to jump out of the jar and he keeps hitting the lid. And after time, when you take the lid off, the flea doesn't know how to jump out of the jar. All it knows is how to jump as high as the lid was. And he said, never put a lid on your jar. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. And I've come to understand and in God's word, there is no lid on the jar of who he is. The more I know about him, the less I really know about him. What I think I know is only what I think. What I begin to realize about him is that he's so vast, so large, so universal, so big that I can't wrap my head around it. So when I attempt to, I realize I can't. So what I thought I knew, which was this grand knowledge of God, actually is very small in comparison to who he is. Does that make sense? The vast experience and knowledge of what it means for God to overshadow Mary in the conception of the Savior, the Messiah, there's no lid on that jar for us in understanding. But there is a lid on the jar of what truth is. Truth is truth. This is true. We see that the highly favored of the Most High experience the highest expression and experience the highest of purpose in a very, very personal way. We see it in creation. The Holy Spirit hovered or overshadowed the deep to surface the hidden things, the mysteries of creation that overshadowing power brings into fullness and brings into formation. Jesus says, let there be light, and there's light. Jesus says, water, and there's water. Jesus says, land, and there's land. Jesus says, man, and there's man. Adam and Eve pierced that envelope, and the overshadowing that surrounded them was breached. You see it in the Old Testament with the cloud and the fire. It's called the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah cloud. The result was different from creation, but the intention remained constant. The Most High 
came to produce the highest of what Israel was called to do and was with them, leading them while they were attempting to do it. Overshadowing brought God to a nation so that he could stay with them. A condition of that overshadowing supplied food, security, healing, preservation, access, and even climate change. God overshadowed Israel in a desert, and they lived in an oasis. Overshadowing because an oasis in the desert is not normal. The pregnancy of Mary turns us toward an overshadowing of a creative sort that uniquely explains how God works. She becomes miraculously pregnant with the Messiah. Jesus does not originate with man. He originates with God. Yet God brings Jesus into history through a natural process. God combines this miraculous overshadowing with the natural pregnancy. Working with Mary, using Mary to produce the promise of the Redeemer. The word overshadowed is used at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's used of Peter's shadow that released healing and freedom to people who came within the physical scope of that shadow's influence. This is the grand miracle. Two distinct natures in one person. The hypostatic union. Jesus entered the world the same way that you and I did. He came through a woman. This one act alone probably speaks the most to his humanity because this is how every other person enters the world. He was tempted. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He died. And as if the miracles of performing the miracles of healing and bringing the dead to life and casting out demons should alone prove his divinity, some of these qualities he gave to his disciples to perform also. But only he, only he is distinctly divine to forgive sin, to receive worship, to be validated by God the Father. Jesus always had been God, as we read, but the incarnation brought Jesus as a man. The addition of the human nature to the divine nature makes Jesus the God-man. That's the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, one person, fully God, fully man. Two natures, human and divine, that are inseparable. He will forever be the God-man, fully God and fully human, two distinct natures in one person. And there are important reasons for this. The Bible tells us that Jesus became human so that he could identify with human struggles and pains, so that he would become the spiritual high priest for us, a mediator between God and man that would secure the believer's redemption. He died on the cross to atone for sins, for those who would believe and needed a human body so that he could die. The hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is both human and divine perfectly. Neither nature is diminished by the other, and he is a whole and eternal 
person. At the end of the day, the term itself is not essential. You don't really hear it spoken on the street corners. Hey, have you heard about the hypostatic union? (laughs) Most people are going to say, no, what union do they work for? What are they... But the concept behind the term is infinitely precious. Worshipfully mind-stretching. Immeasurably sweet. Awe-inspiring to know that Jesus' two natures are perfectly united in one person. His two natures are without confusion, without chains. Without division, without separation, Jesus is one. I'll probably pronounce this wrong. Chalcedonian or Chalcedonian? Chalcedonian Chalcedonian Creed. Thank you. See, it's always good to have Bryant here. You can actually ask Chad in the back. (laughs) That's right, Chad's here. (sighs) Let me go back and start over. (laughs) Because of this Union, Jesus is one focal point for our worship. Because of this union, he exhibits unparalleled magnificence and excellence. No one person satisfies the complex longing of the human heart like the God-man does. God has made the human heart in such a way that it will never be eternally content with that which is only human. Even though we're finite people, you really can't shake our thirst for the infinite, can you? And yet, in our finite humanity, we are significantly helped by a point of meeting, talking with, being changed by the divine. God was glorious long before he became man in Jesus. But we are human beings. And a deity that's not incarnate doesn't really connect with us in the same way as God becoming human. The conception of a God who never became a man will not satisfy the human soul like the God who did. And beyond just gazing from afar at this spectacular person, Jesus Christ, we have the amazing revelation, which is gospel-laced, that the reason that Jesus became the God-man was for us. The personal union of God and man in Him is personal for us. His fully human nature joined to His divine nature is permanent proof that Jesus, in perfect harmony with God the Father, is unstoppably for us. He has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He took our nature to his one person and he died for us. In Pastor Bryant's notes, he says, this is the grand miracle of Christ's incarnation. What could never happen in the natural world did happen once in a particular place, in a particular time, 
with a particular young girl. All other miracles that occur in Christianity, Jesus' mighty signs and wonders, the miracles through the apostles, the wondrous miracles scattered throughout Christian history, every human soul that is transformed into a willing and repentant soul, renewed in Christ, all stem from this one grand miracle. He wrote, The impossible was possible. The divine holiness of sinless power and perfection existed in the natural, the fallen and sinful nature. See, if he was preaching today, he would have said that. It's good stuff, isn't it? Why? How? Can this be? Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't it interesting that Gabriel says these words and he's gone? Usually when we have conversations with people and they're long conversations, we usually don't remember all the conversation. But what what do we usually remember? The last part. I don't think it's a mistake that one of the last things that Mary heard Gabriel say, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Scripture tells us as we move on through the birth, the young life, the life of Jesus, that Mary's heart was pierced for what she knew was coming. But I can't help but think, and I don't like to argue from silence in a narrative, but I can't help but think that God was reminding her, Mary, nothing is impossible with me. The incarnation is more than a hymn or a song. It's more than a day on the calendar. It is the central truth in the lifeblood of what we believe as Christians. And it's important that you and I would know doctrine and know it well. We should know what we believe. We should absolutely know why we believe it. In as much as our finite little minds can understand. In Mormonism, Brigham Young introduced this as the conception of Jesus and how it happened. God the father became a man and had sexual relations with Mary and therefore Jesus is God's son. In Catholicism, the Immaculate Conception is celebrated. The Immaculate Conception is not this. The Immaculate Conception is a concept that Mary's conception was overshadowed. Her own being created was overshadowed. And that God set her apart 
to live a holy, sinless life in order to prepare for the sinless Jesus to be born from her. Is it not really important to know what the Bible says? There's nothing in the Bible that helps us understand that Mary led a sinless life. We know that God's grace was bestowed upon her. She was highly favored by God. But there's nothing in Scripture anywhere that would help us come to the conclusion of that concept of the Immaculate Conception. Are you with me? I'm not trying to beat people up or beat other things up, but the truth is the truth and we got to know why we believe what we believe. And the cornerstone of our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other thing. It brings eternal life. It is the, He is the only one who can bring eternal life. There's nothing under heaven on, on earth that can do anything to get us to heaven except Him, His work, what He did is the only thing that can bring us to God. And this is a huge understanding of the depth of the gospel. Friends, the more we really study and understand the love of Jesus, if we're not left in a more all Inspiring state, I don't know what we're doing. And it may be that we just need to stop. Need to stop the noise, need to stop the madness. We just need to stop. And allow God to do something in us that only He can do, only He can take credit for Pastor Brian's notes, I didn't say it, but I remember reading any miracle that's performed that man can take credit for is not a miracle from God. And the miraculous should be taking place and can take place in our lives every single day as we submit to Him, us. We deny ourselves more completely. We understand what taking up his cross really means and we follow him. But it doesn't happen without understanding some of this. Does that make sense, everybody? I don't even know how to land the plane here, guys. I really don't. Except to say this. Stop. But don't stop studying. Understand. But understand through his eyes and his mind. Live, but live in His power and in His grace. And you and I will sleep well, knowing that we have. For He is the peace that passes all understanding. So as we get those who are going to help with communion to come back up, I want to pray and then lead us in a time of enjoying the Lord's Supper together. Father, we're just thankful 
You ordained this time. You called your church, the called out ones, to come together. To worship, to celebrate, to confess, to repent, to be a family, to live life together. You ordained this time. And so we're thankful, God, that we are at a place where we can freely come together to do that. And I pray, oh God, that you would help our finite minds to grasp more understanding of you, Jesus, and your person and your work through the incarnation. That it would cause us to study, that it would cause us to memorize, it would cause us to make commitments to you that we can make through the truth of your scripture and in the power of your spirit. God, I pray that we would not search scriptures in a legalistic way, but we would search scriptures in a transformative way. We seek you. We want to come near to you. And in so doing so, you come near to us. And even as we said, this is more than just a God is with us passage. This is the nucleus of the person of Jesus, our understanding of the God-man and how it should motivate us to just fall on our knees and worship you. It should cause us to become undone. It should motivate us to be able to articulate that which we believe. It should excite us to the point of sharing our lives with those who don't know you. And it should comfort us to know that you alone are the one who saves. You alone are the one who draws men to you. And we get to help you by being willing vessels to do that. So God, I pray that your work would be done in this church. I pray for the continued leadership of Pastor Bryant and the leaders here. And especially today, Lord, I pray for your comfort and strength for the Burgess family. I pray, God, that through this season of time, as they seek your face, as you reveal yourself even more to them through your word, through their prayer, through your answers to their prayer, that it would draw each and every family member closer to you in such a way that only you could be given credit for. Again, we can do nothing apart from you. So God, I pray that you draw them to yourself and envelop them, overshadow them with your love and comfort and strength. As we enter into this time of communion, God, I pray that our hearts have been prepared to the singing of songs, teaching one another scripture by the hearing of your word, by the giving of tithes and offerings. I pray that we could celebrate now a time of communion with you through this Lord's table. For Jesus, it always will be, always has been. And today we want to make sure we make it all about you. We love you. We worship you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.
Scripture says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, <clears throat> he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup and after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You're part of the practice and more of the tradition in, 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 in the Baptist realm. Marry scripture. The Lord's table is not to be abused. And the serious note of understanding what the Lord's table is is first to know who Jesus is. And so we would ask that if you have not yet come to a place where you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you know your eternal home, that you've made a decision to follow Him, that you've understood what sin is and what repentance is, what holiness is, that you've come to a place where you said, I am not my own, I am His. That you wouldn't drink the cup, that you would not eat the bread, and it's okay. But also, if you know that you're a believer and you have conflict in your heart, whether it's unconfessed sin, something that you may have committed or omitted, something relational to a person, especially in the church family, Examine your heart, as Scripture's instructed us to do. And make sure nothing stands in the way of you and the throne. It is better for you and I to reconcile and then drink the cup and eat the bread, or eat the bread and drink the cup, than it is to eat the bread and drink the cup in a way that the Lord never intended it, in an unworthy manner. And so bring judgment on ourselves in doing so. Am I making sense, everybody? So Jesus, on the night he was arrested, took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of my of the new covenant poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And fathers, we do this together. We give thanks that you gave your son, Jesus Christ. We give thanks that you brought him into this world. We give thanks, O Lord, because Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And through our belief, through our submission, 
through our admission, through our confession, through our repentance of our sins, the redeemed in the room can say so. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. And we worship you and celebrate you today and every day. May you always lead the lives of your people. We call you our friend, no longer an enemy, for you poured out your blood for us. Thank you, Jesus. And we give you thanks for your body. We give you thanks for the shed blood in your precious name. Amen.